0: This is The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts and local charities. Here's your host Amanda Jones.
1: Hello and welcome to The Legal Lounge where we now release new episodes every Monday. If you haven't heard previous shows, there's plenty of content for you if you're going through a divorce, want to know more about claiming for injuries or you're training to be a lawyer. You can listen to these shows on your favourite podcast app and get more information by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, family law solicitors John Moriarty and Caroline York cover those pitfalls and problems you need to be aware of in family law cases, including timescales for prenuptial agreements and the lack of transparency with assets, and having arrangements agreed when benefiting from the bank of mum and dad.
2: Hi, I'm Caroline and I'm here with my colleague John. We are today going to look at some of the pitfalls and issues that in our combined years of experience have uh, cropped up over that time and that we think might be helpful to point out to people who are thinking of instructing a solicitor. So John I'm sure that if we compared our lists there'd be a lot of common factors in there of things we've spotted so having got our heads together what would you say would be some of the issues that have cropped up in the past that you feel you'd like to be able to try and flag up?
0: So one of the issues which has uh, cropped up more recently in my experience is with the increase in parties who are looking to regulate their financial arrangements in the event of divorce before they get uh, married and therefore want to enter into a prenuptial agreement is that if the agreement is being entered into less than 28 days before the marriage the view is taken the shorter the period of time the less likely the court will uphold the arrangements set out in that prenuptial agreement so if anybody is thinking of having a prenuptial agreement what i would emphasize is it's really important that sufficient building time is provided for in the run up to the uh, the wedding so that a proper agreement can be negotiated in good times. So I would say that is one of the problems uh, I've encountered. Similarly, insofar as prenuptial agreements are concerned, the parties not providing full and frank discussion. It doesn't have to be immensely detailed, but it does have to be true and give a, effectively a good idea of what the financial resources of both parties are. If there is a lack of candour on one or both parties, and it transpires that the the assets were greater than they had set out in that prenuptial agreement, then again, it may be one of the factors which the court takes into account in whether or not that agreement should be upheld. So, certainly, I I would say, look, if you are considering uh, entering into a prenuptial agreement, then please take early legal advice. I wouldn't be saying, look, leave it on day 29 prior to the wedding to go and take advice. I'd be saying, probably a good few months beforehand so that If there are going to be negotiations, there is sufficient time to do so.
2: I think people are gaining more awareness of the unofficial requirement for 28 days, for the agreement to be signed 28 days before the wedding. But it's understanding that there will need to be work done before that, because not having sufficient time to do that work to lead up to a signed agreement can also be a problem in that they could be then argued that people were under duress to sign it or that a less than complete job was done. So absolutely, I I would be counselling people to... Leave it no no later than three, four months beforehand to allow for the fact that there is going to be negotiation, even just standard correspondence between the two sets of solicitors. It's really important to make sure that everybody has really all their ducks in a row when it comes to that. You also talked about disclosure in the context of prenuptial agreements. I would say that being entirely frank and candid about your financial circumstances has an impact in any financial proceedings within divorce. And what have you come across any?
0: Um, problems absolutely. There? Uh, I, I think that there is an obligation on parties within financial negotiations or where there are ongoing financial remedy proceedings. To provide full and frank disclosure, I would say to anybody who is reluctant to be transparent about their financial circumstances, then proceed at your own risk. Because if it transpires that an agreement was made on the back of information which is incorrect, firstly, if you knew that the information you were putting forward was incorrect, then... There are potential criminal sanctions for giving false information to the court if you knew that that was the case. Similarly, there are potential contempt proceedings. Importantly, for the party, they need to be aware that any agreement reached on the back of disclosure about their financial circumstances, which has been deliberately be known to be untrueful, then any agreement can be set aside, and they will also face cost sanctions. Although it may be very tempting for one party not to be candid about their financial circumstances, my very clear advice is don't speak to your lawyer. If there are issues you are worried about, discuss those with your lawyer so that you can plan accordingly. And more often than not, there are steps which can be taken to manage the issues which you believe are a problem, and very often they are not. But trying to keep back information, in my experience, has a nasty habit of coming back and tripping the unwary further down the line. And certainly those people who are minded to proceed will find that they will come unstuck later down the road.
2: Absolutely. You reminded me there actually of another situation that I quite often encounter where... It's not necessarily the case that the disclosure or lack of disclosure is motivated by any ill will or any desire to be devious. But it's just almost oversight, and particular situations that I've encountered have been where there are other family members involved in the couple's financial arrangements. I'm thinking, for example, of um, what we would call the bank of mum and dad, where parents have helped out in the purchase of a property or have helped the parties acquire some assets, and there's never really any clarity at that point about what the arrangements would be in the event of a future breakdown and that goes very much back to your prenuptial agreement that nobody goes into a wedding um, anticipating that this won't work out but sadly for various reasons it doesn't. Where parents have been involved or other family members have been involved in the acquisition of assets then it's really important to anticipate that that might be a problem in the future and how you manage that um, whether the parents need to go and get separate independent legal advice about the help they're giving to the the couple uh, or to one child and whether they need to enter into specific loan agreements or alter their wills to reflect the situation. So it's really important I think to anticipate those problems at an early stage. Because within divorce proceedings further down the line, there may be no ill will or malice involved, but the lack of certainty and clarity about these things will just end up tripping you up in, in financial proceedings.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a, a really valid point. Uh, and similarly, two situations which spring to my mind I've encountered is whereby if a client is receiving assistance financially to cover the costs of the proceedings and they are just receiving money on the understanding it will be repaid, but there is no formal loan agreement to that effect, then the court may well take the view that this is what they term a soft loan and therefore won't be given the same weight in terms of that party's financial circumstances within the overall financial settlement as they would, for instance, if there was a hard commercial Loan with a, a high street lender, for instance, or a litigation loan uh, funder, whereby it is clear that this is a formal commercial loan which will need to be repaid. On There's that a clear
2: expectation a- that absolutely. it's an so asset, a liability. I yeah. think that's
0: really, really important. And taking it one step further, also when hopefully matters are resolved and one party has got a financial settlement and they may be looking to purchase a new property they need to be aware that if they are receiving some financial assistance from again a family member but they're also taking out a mortgage then if that money is being advanced on the basis of a loan that will need to be disclosed to the mortgage provider and that may have an, an impact so again if that is the expectation whilst the financial negotiations are ongoing it is really important that you speak to your lawyer and say, look, this is what's going to happen in terms of my future housing, for example, so that steps can be taken to factor that in and how the case may be presented to the court on that on that side. So I think that's really important in that regard. Again, m- moving on, there's a perhaps a financial order in place and the parties now want to implement the agreement. And I've got in mind here, Caroline, possibility that uh, one party's pensions are going to be shared through a pension sharing order. Are there any problems which you've come across in such circumstances? Yeah,
2: the two things that spring to mind, I think, when we're dealing with pension sharing orders are Dealing with one client's eagerness almost when everything is over and they see this difficult chapter in their life coming to a close. Their eagerness to apply for decree absolute or the final order, as it's now called, to end the marriage. And there are certain rather tedious and complicated provisions that I won't bore everyone with now. But essentially they boil down to the fact that you should really avoid applying for decree absolute until 28 days have elapsed from the date of the financial order and the pension sharing order. Because in the event of the death of the person with the pension, the pension sharing order can effectively fail, uh, which can leave the other, the other party um, relying, who was relying upon it somewhat cut adrift. So as I say, I don't intend to go into chapter and verse about it because that's a whole new podcast that nobody would listen to. But uh, suffice to say that uh, you would probably be advised against applying for Decree Absolute or your final divorce order until 28 days have elapsed. And it's also really important, especially if you are going to deal with the the post-order admin yourself, which some people do, really important to make sure that the pension sharing order the annex as it's known is actually served upon the pension company the pension provider so that they can start to implement it they will eventually need the decree absolute stroke final order before they can put it in stone but it's those little steps that I think in the elation of getting everything over and done with can be overlooked especially if you've been embroiled in quite difficult proceedings for a couple of years, the sense of relief can sometimes mean that those those really important little steps just just become clouded and are forgotten about. So I think those are the two potential stumbling blocks that's, that I would emphasise everybody needs to look at and take advice on.
0: One of the issues which I've encountered is perhaps where a property has been sold, there's an issue as to what happens with the Proceed of sale. Have you experienced that type of situation, Caroline?
2: Yes, uh, quite often. And again, it's in the situations where I think there's a degree of agreement between the parties to the extent that they've actually managed to agree to sell a property before the divorce is sometimes even underway, really, or it's in the middle of divorce proceedings. So they have at least been able to agree that the property should be sold. They've agreed what it should be sold for, who the estate agents are. So there's a lot of progress that have been made between them. But what hasn't been agreed is how those sale proceeds are going to be divided up. And increasingly, especially in a a buoyant property market, properties are selling so fast or have been selling so fast that a client has very early on in their relationship with me, after instructing me, said, Oh, and by the way, we're completing on the sale of the property this week. The sales solicitor will be under some pressure simply just to divide the money according to how the property is owned. They really can't do much else. But that might not be what the parties want, and they may have very different ideas about how the money should be divided up. And we're then sometimes left in a situation where there's a lot of urgent, potentially quite expensive work to be done. To try and prevent money being given to people that that the other party doesn't want it to go to, I would always say to people: um, as soon as you become aware that a property is being sold, um, even if that's before your initial appointment with me, in that in the at the first available opportunity, tell the solicitor where you're up to in the sale of your property. Give them the sales solicitors details so that the two sets of solicitors can can, uh, correspond and speak with each other. And it also provides an opportunity then to negotiate with the other person within the proceedings. It may well be that you can agree something as simple as one solicitor holding the money until agreement is reached and that can therefore prevent the loss of a sale or the collapse of a sale but it can sometimes create problems that are completely disproportionate in terms of time misery and costs and could have been avoided just with a couple of emails or this or the divorce solicitor being aware that the property is even about
0: to sell that's certainly a problem i've encountered over the years even when there perhaps it is no dispute about who gets what there is perhaps sometimes a failure to take into account other issues which may be impacted by the fact that one party is now going to have a certain sum of capital. And I'm thinking now with specific examples, for instance, whereby that money is not going to be rolled into another property, for instance, and it's just going to be retained. But if that person is in receipt of means-tested benefits, that can all of a sudden mean that they're out of scope for the eligibility for that particular benefit, such that they're then having to subsidise their income from their own capital. So it is a a real minefield for the uh, unwary. Uh, And again, to emphasise, in my view, if there are any assets which are going to be sold, disposed of, transferred, it really is critical firstly to speak to your lawyer so that at a very early stage, before it takes place, there are other issues which also flow from that potential Tax implications, which, as I'll say today, is outside the scope of this podcast and will need specific advice. But hopefully those issues can be identified early and your lawyer can signpost you to the appropriate expert for you to get proper ad- uh, advice. One further point which uh, occurs to me as we're speaking today is... Is the issue which arises whereby one party remarries before the financial settlement has been resolved? It's what is known between lawyers as the remarriage trap, and what that means is that if one party remarries without having made a claim for a financial order in a, the divorce application or a formal application on what is known as a Form A, that person will be prevented from seeking maintenance orders for themselves, lump sums, property adjustment orders and pension attachment orders and the only order they can obtain as part of the divorce or dissolution proceedings is a, a pension sharing order. And so it really is very, very important that, again, speaking to your lawyer, getting advice at an early stage before you A, remarry, because that is going to potentially have an impact. Now, there are, again, other avenues which can be explored. Again, not for, the, uh, for today. But please, I'd urge anybody who is thinking of remarrying and they haven't sorted out the financial uh, settlement to engage with a lawyer and get uh, proper advice on that side.
2: What would you say, we've we've talked a good deal about how to administer the financial order that you've received um, in terms of serving pension, sharing annexes and so on. What would you say about situations where the parties just reach a nice informal agreement between themselves and divorce and go off into the sunset? Are there pitfalls with that arrangement?
0: certainly there are in the absence of a a court order settling the financial arrangements then what happens is unless the remarriage trap applies those claims are just left open Uh, and that creates a degree of uncertainty uh, for the future in those circumstances I'd be saying that it is often the case there are certain exemptions where it is not but it is often the case that it is better to have an order formalising the financial arrangements, rather than just leaving those claims open. And there has been recent cases, when I say recent, over the last few years, whereby the court has made it clear that there is no bar on bringing claims for financial orders arising out of the divorce, even if many years have elapsed since the parties separated and divorced. So again, please speak to your lawyer, get advice as to how to formalise the financial arrangements when you're divorced and separating.
2: And I think all of that, if we had to summarise everything that we've talked about, it emphasises the importance of giving full and early information to your solicitor, even as far back as the first meeting. In addition to financial information, uh, make sure that you bring, for example, if you're uh, consulting your solicitor about a children matter or um, domestic abuse, Bring as much initial information as you can to that meeting, um, such as any previous court orders, because even the, the, the structure of that order can have a real impact on the advice that we give if the police have been involved see if you can bring the crime reference number with you, the collar number of the of the officer who attended. They will never be reluctant to hand that information out. I always say to people, don't feel that you uh, may be bringing too much with you. We have experience in sifting through information. We would rather have too much than too little and be left guessing. And ultimately, that then benefits you, the amount of uh, advice you get, the quality of the advice you get, and the, ty- the use that is made of the time and money that you're dedicating to this.
0: What I'd also say about the importance of providing information such as police involvement is particularly where there may well be still live bail conditions which impact upon how you are able to contact the other party is really important because your lawyer will need to know that because they could be putting you in breach of either that bail condition or some form of order which regulates your conduct or behaviour towards the other party And therefore, please do share that information. It is really, really vitally important.
1: Thanks to Caroline and John for lending their expertise. More proof that lawyers don't bite. If you have a legal issue you'd like me to put to our team to cover in an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please remember to follow or subscribe on your app so you're notified of new releases when they come out every Monday. Speak to you next
0: week. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.